Uh, I'm Rayshawn Graves. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm usually at the, at the first service as well, but uh, it's good to see you all on today. Uh, as you know, we've been in our series on Advent, and we've been focusing on the themes of hope, peace, love, and joy. Uh, this week we'll be talking about the topic of love, uh, particularly God's love and what that means for us in this season of Advent. And as we celebrate the, the coming of Christ into the world, uh, in, in dying for our place, for, in our place for our sins, and then being raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, uh, we celebrate that during this Advent season. And so uh, this, is what we, uh, this is what we anticipate and long for in this season. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to Psalms chapter 13. Uh, this is where we're going to be at today. Psalms chapter 13. Just what we're looking at today is, is God's love uh, in this season of Advent, God's love in, in light of living in a world of loneliness, of, in living in a world of rejection, and uh, living in a world of loneliness. And uh, with Advent, is this longing and anticipation for these themes of hope, peace, love, and joy to ultimately be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so prior uh, to Christ coming into the world in the Old Testament, uh, those people who, who lived uh, prior to Christ were, were, were anticipating uh, all of these things to be fulfilled in Christ, uh, a world where there was no hopelessness, a world where there was peace, a world where there was joy, a world where there was no loneliness. Uh, these all, they were anticipating and longing for these things to be fulfilled in Christ, coming into the world as a baby to live and, and die uh, for our sins. And so uh, we also anticipate and long for these same things of hope, peace, love, and joy to be fulfilled and completed and brought to completion in the person and work of Christ as we wait for his second coming, uh, where he cracks the sky and he brings all of those who believe even and trust in him. He brings them to himself uh, to spend eternity with them in, in loving God and being loved by God. And so we anticipate this in this season of Advent. We anticipate God's love. And it's honestly the reason why we celebrate. It's the reason, it's the very essence of why we even celebrate during the season that God, in his love for us, sends his son into the world to die for sinners so that whoever, believe in him, whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life what John chapter 3 verse 16 says. And so this is what we're longing for. This is what we're anticipating, God's love. And uh, many times throughout the season, you, you look on the internet advertisements, you look on the television commercials, and you walk in the stores, and you see all the different things that, that the media and the culture pu- pushes and promotes. They, they come up with their, their definition of what it means to be loved, and this definition and, uh, and demonstration of what it means to show love. And it's through the commercials, through the advertisements, and the different things that we see this. And, and you see the the media is saying uh, to, to be loved means to be spending time uh, during this time of the year with friends, with family, with loved ones. It means being with one another, giving gifts to one another, receiving gifts. It's everyone sitting around a big Christmas table with lots of food and tacky sweaters on. And you, you turn on the television and, and it's, it's Whoville and everybody's holding hands and singing songs. And so love is pushed a lot during this time of the year. And the, the media does a good job of pushing its own definition of what it means to be loved and what it means to, to demonstrate love to others. And uh, these things are, are, are good. It's good to spend time with friends. It's good to spend time with family and loved ones. And if we have these things, if we've been blessed uh, by God to have these relationships, we shouldn't take them for granted. We should uh, uh, just thank him for them. But at the same time, we don't want to put all of our eggs in this one basket of what the, what the media and what the culture and what the world's definition says of what it means to be loved, that it's, that it's this. 
But we want to focus on and we want to remember, we want to relish and cherish the true demonstration and the supreme demonstration and definition of love and what it means to be loved. And that's, that's God's love and sending his son into the world to die in our place for our sins so that if we believe in him and if we trust in him, then we have life. We, we are loved by God. And, and so before we jump into this, uh, this morning, we're, we're going to talk about uh, Psalms chapter 13. And in light of that, I'm going to go ahead and pray first, and then we'll, we'll get back to that. But in light of that, we're going to see how, how instead of trusting in the, the, the media and the, and the world and the culture's definition of, of what it means to be loved, we don't want to miss the supreme demonstration of God's love. So I'm going to go ahead and pray really quick. I almost got ahead of myself, but uh, let's go ahead to the, to the Lord for a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this service, Lord God. We, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would just open up our hearts, our minds, to just receive what you would have for us to receive. May it be your words that go forth. May it be your thoughts, Lord God. Uh, may it not be mine, but may you just speak what you would, would have for us to receive, Lord God. Help us to remember and to, to cherish the, the supreme demonstration of your love that was displayed in Christ coming into this world to die for our sins. So uh, we just give you the glory for this. We pray that you will be exalted and your name would be made, made great in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so in light of uh, what we see is the, this, this definition of love that's going all around during this, this time of the holidays, uh, also because of the over-commercialization and, and the hype that comes with it. When you see the television commercials and, and you, you see all the, the things and the internet advertisements and you walk into the stores and they've got this definition of love, uh, because people can't match up to it or because people feel as though they can't live up to it because they, they look at their relationships or they look at their lives and they say that, you know, I don't have the family. I don't have the friends. I, I, I'm alone during this time of the year. I don't, have, I don't have all of these things of what the media is saying, what it means to be loved. And therefore, at this time of the year, loneliness is at an all-time high. Worry and, and, and fear and frustration and feeling rejection and feeling forgotten is at an all-time high. And also, because it's the end of the year, many people uh, tend to analyze their lives around this time of the year. They look back on, on the past year and they look back to the past and uh, just feelings of regret and feelings of guilt and, and shame and, and remorse just, just come to haunt us around this time of the year. Just thinking back on the past and a lot of people are getting ready to, for the big do more and try harder that comes with New Year's resolutions. And so as a result, they, they, feel, they feel lonely. They feel like even God has forgotten about them, that God doesn't accept them because of, of past sins, of regrets and fear and, and shame and remorse. And so uh, what we want to do is we want to see someone in, in the Psalms today, particularly David, and how he feels this sorrow, how he feels this loneliness. But at the same time, it's when he focuses on and meditates on the steadfast love of the Lord that his perspective changes, that, that he goes from sorrow and he goes from sorrow to singing. He goes from pain to praise. And so I, if you find yourself in either one of those, those categories this morning of, of whether you're feeling just lonely because you look at and you may have the lack of those relationships or you may look at those relationships and they're broken and they don't live up to the, the culture and the media's definition of around this time of year, what it means to be loved, or you find yourself analyzing your sins and maybe the ghosts of your past have, have come to haunt you with, with guilt and with shame and you feel like you're alone, you feel like you've been rejected by God, that God is hiding his face from you, I pray that we would be in encouraged by the scriptures today to see that God's steadfast love is, needs to be the source of our joy and the source of our peace and the source of our hope. And uh, this is what we want to see in the scripture. So uh, around this time of the year, uh, you, you, I, I looked up this thing on WebMD uh, after I heard uh, Chris DeRogo talk about that uh, last week. On, uh, he looked up WebMD and I, I noticed something, I found something on here that, that 
kind of categorized and talked about, you know, the feelings that people go through of loneliness and of, of fear and of worry around this time of the year. It's called the, the holiday blues. And uh, this is something I found on, on the website. It says, the holiday blues are supposed to be a joyful time of good cheer and optimistic hopes. Yet it is not unusual for many of us to feel sad or lonely during the holiday period, a condition that has come to be called holiday blues or holiday depression. Holiday depression may occur at any holiday or vacation time, but it most commonly happens during the December holidays when it may seem just about everyone in the world is celebrating in some way. There are many causes for holiday blues, and the symptoms may mimic clinical depression. While they may be intense and unsettling, holiday blues are usually short-lived, lasting for a few days to a few weeks prior to or just after the holiday. And the good news is the holiday blues usually subside after the holiday season is over and the daily routines are resumed. There's a long list of recommended do's and don'ts for managing your holiday blues, and there, there are a lot of links in here that I didn't really care to click on, but this is the holiday blues, and it says, the most important things to remember are it's a normal response to a stress-filled time of the year, and you don't have to suffer unnecessarily. Find someone to talk with who can help you through this difficult time, a family member, a friend, a member of the clergy, or a physician or a professional counselor. So this is the holiday blues. This is what, what is being clinically diagnosed to people who are going through depression and this loneliness and this, this worry and this feelings of guilt around this time of the year because they can't live up to the, to the over-commercialization. And, and if you may find yourself with the holiday blues, we want to be encouraged by the scriptures and we want to look at someone who, who didn't have the holiday blues necessarily, but he had the blues nonetheless. And so we're going to look at Psalms chapter 13 and see, see how David goes through and how he ends up trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord. And uh, we're going to kind of read and talk through the psalm, but first we want to define what the love of God is. Because we want to see how the love of God is not, is not the same as this love that the media defines. It's not the same as this love that's pushed and promoted around this time of the year, and then it goes away, then we often see it back again around February 14th, and then it goes away, and then it comes back right around Easter, and then it goes away for a long time, and then we see it around December again. It's not that kind of love. The love of God is, is something different. It's not conditional. It's not something that's totally, it's based on uh, what, what we can do for God, or, what, or something that we can do for one another, or something that we see in one another that obligates us to love somebody, but it's different. God's love is, uh, we want to list about five things that we see in God's love, and uh, when we see in verse 5 of Psalm chapter 13, it says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. If you have the King James Version, it renders it uh, mercy, and and all throughout the Bible when it says steadfast love, and in the King James it says mercy, but I like how the ESV words it, how it says steadfast love, and this is mentioned over 270 times just in the Psalms alone, and when, when steadfast love is mentioned, it's looking back to the love of God and what he has done in creation and redemption, and that's the steadfast love that David is trusting in in this Psalm, and it's going to be the steadfast love of the Lord that, that is to be our hope and to be the thing that we trust in, in in times of loneliness and in times of depression. And so we're going to look at some things about God's love so that we can have the proper perspective when we read this psalm and when David says he trusts in that steadfast love. So what does it mean when, it's, when we talk about God's steadfast love? Well, I've just list five points. God's love is, firstly, God's love is free. It's unevoked and it's spontaneous. When God chooses to love, it's because he chooses to. There's nothing outside of him that obligates, that, 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 makes him, or that, that makes him obligated to love us. But when he chooses to love, he, he does it because he is pleased to love. He's pleased to show love. So when it says God's love is, God is love, it, he's, it's free, it's unevoked, and it's, it's spontaneous. It's from no other reason that, than that he is pleased to show love. 
Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can feel free to turn there, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So this is the love of God that's free. It's unevoked that, that, that there's nothing in, within us that obligates him to love us. And this leads us to the second point that God's love is, uh, is, is undeserved. To anyone who has ever benefited or received from or been a recipient of God's love, it's been totally undeserving of it. You and I have no claim on God's love because if you flip to Romans chapter 3, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is no none righteous, no not one. We don't have any claim to the love of God, but God freely chooses to love and to demonstrate his love by sending his son to die for sinners. You know, there's a song that that we often hear, we were talking about last night, and it was called, this song called, He Saw the Best in Me. But that's not true. God did not see the best in us. What he saw was sin. What he saw was, he he saw his his holiness, his righteousness, his standard of purity and, and, and justice and truth. And he saw that we fall short of that constantly, always, every day. We fall short without even trying because of our thoughts, our deeds, our actions, just the way we were born as sinful. And it says in Habakkuk 2 that he is of purer eyes than to behold evil and iniquity. So you and I, we have no claim on God's love. Because if we take a look at ourselves and we, we measure ourselves against his standard that he reveals in Scripture, we fall short. And there's no, there's, there is no best in us that would obligate God to love us. We're undeserving of it. Because he is love, because God is love, we actually, we actually do the things that, that we're not just neutral objects. We're not just at this place in the middle where, where we're just undeserving of his love, but we're not that bad. But we actually do the things, because, because we are sinful, we actually do the things that warrant and merit his wrath. We do the things that warrant and merit his, his, his justice and his wrath upon us. So when God loves us, it's, it's, it's more than just we are undeserving. It's, it's far more than that. It's, it's him extending grace to not just neutral people who just aren't that bad. It's, it's him extending grace and love towards his enemies. Because of our sin, we set ourselves contrary against God. But in his love, he freely chooses to love us. This is what we see in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1 as well, how God chooses to love freely and he chooses to give it to the undeserving, how it's out of the counsel of his own will, of, the pur- of his own purposes and his own will that we're, we're made sons and daughters, that we're adopted, that we are uh, predestined according to his love. It's because of the counsel of his own will. So the third thing, God's love is personal. Is personal. This is what Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, how, how Christ loved me and gave himself for me. It's not, just thing that, it's not just this thing that said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, period, and that's it. But it's, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes this love has an object. 
It has, it has someone, it's, it's after. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the way where a, a man can stand up and say that he loves everyone in here. He just loves everyone in here. But then he looks at his wife and he says, I love her with a, a more, a different kind of love. I, I'm willing to die for her. And that's what God's love is when he, it's a, it relates him as a husband to his, his wife, his bride, his sheep. That if we believe and trust in Christ. We're recipients of God's everlasting love, that he loves us as a, as a father to his children, as a husband for his wife. It's, it's an everlasting love. It goes, it's not just, just, oh, this is just everybody, but for those who believe and trust in Christ as their hope, as their treasure, God loves them with an everlasting love. Fourth, God love, God's love is real. For the objects of, of his love, God's love is real. It's not that he just stands back. It's not that he just stands back and just says, oh, I, I hope you'll, you'll be with me one day and I hope that you'll just, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll come to me and that my hands are kind of tied and I can't really do anything about it and, and I see you suffering, but I really don't know what to say or do. But God, he comes down in the, in the midst of our, our suffering and he, he sees our suffering. He hears the cries of the Egyptians in Israel and, and he does something about it. Christ is our high priest who, who feels the things that we feel in our sufferings and our afflictions and, and, the, and our pain. He identifies with it. He, he, he doesn't count it equality with God as something to be grasped, but he, he empties himself and becomes a servant. He becomes a man and lives with us, experiencing our pains, our sufferings. And he dies for us. So it's real. It's personal. Fifth, God's love is steadfast. Once again, it's not God just standing back and, and he's just unable to do something, but he actually intervenes. He moves in and does something because he loves. He intervenes. He doesn't just stand back and just say, I wish I could do something. I'm powerless to do it. But it's, it's, it's his love that motivates his power to save us, to send his son to die on the cross, to pay for sin, to absorb sin so that if we believe in him, it has the power to bring us into everlasting life. It has the power to transform us into new creations. It has the power to conform us to the image of Jesus. It's a steadfast love. It's unwavering. It's strong. It's immovable, and it's immutable. There's nothing that, 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 that you can do. There's nothing that I can do to, to, to lose his love when, when we're in Christ. It's because it's not based on us. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how, how bad you think you are, it's God's love. It's based on Christ. And because it's based on Christ, he loves us with the same love that he loves his perfect, spotless, and blameless son. It's not this love that goes, you know, he's got this flower petal and he loves me and he loves me not. I, I do something good and he loves me. I, I do something bad and he loves me not. Now I got to get his love back again. But no, it's not based on that. It's based on Christ. And his perfect sacrifice and substitution in our place for our sins. So that now when God sees us, we are his righteousness. We are accepted. We are eternally loved. So this is the love that we are anticipating. This is the love that David is anticipating in this psalm when he's going through sorrow, when he's going through pain, and, and when he's going through this frustration, feeling like God has hidden himself from him. This is the game changer around verse 5 where he says, I trust in your steadfast love. This is the love that he's anticipating. This is the love that he is longing for, and this is the love that we can long for if you're, you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling going through suffering or affliction, and you feel rejected, and maybe you feel like God has hidden his faith from you, face from you, and whether you feel that now, or whether you have ever felt that, or whether you will feel that in the future, anticipate and long for God's love, his steadfast love. So we're going to look at Psalms chapter 13, 
And in the first two verses, we're going to see the pain. We're going to see the pain that, that David is going through when he writes this song. This isn't the same David that, that you know, just a, maybe a few years earlier, however long ago, came up against Goliath with, with pure confidence, knowing that God was on his side, and he grabs the stones and he, he slays the giant with nothing but pure confidence, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. This is, this is David who's in sorrow, who's in pain. He may be hiding in a cave because it says later he's going he's gonna to flee from his enemies. He's, he's, he's hiding from his enemies. And he's going through sorrow and pain. So the first two verses focus on the pain. Verses 3 and 4 focus on the petition or the prayer that he offers up to God. It's funny, it's, it's not like the article that we just read and how David turns to a, a you know, he, he goes and looks at and sees that he has the holiday blues and he goes and turns to a friend or family member or professional counselor and, and, and looks to get advice and why is he feeling this, but rather he, he feels like God is hiding his face from him, but at the same time he turns to God. He turns to God in prayer. He turns to God in crying out. And we want to see that this is where we want to turn to in times where we feel like this, to not turn away from God and feeling like maybe he's hidden his face from us, maybe he's rejected us, but rather to turn to him. So we see the pain in verses 1 and 2, the petition in verses 3 and 4, and then the praise in verses 5 and 6. How something's changed when David starts thinking about and meditating on the, the steadfast love of the Lord. How just verses earlier, just sentences earlier, he's sorrowful. And now he's singing. What is that? What happens? So he goes from a pain to a petition to a praise. So let's see the pain. Just read through verses 1 and 2. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my, my enemy be exalted over me? So this is the pain that David is going through. This is the sorrow that he's feeling. He's feeling like God has, has rejected him. What are the emotions that he's experiencing? These are very real, and these are very, he's very transparent in what he's going through. He's not trying to, trying to just figure it out and get it together. But the, in this song, he is, he's truly crying out and pouring his heart out to God. And how long? He's restless and impatient. This isn't, this isn't sorrow or something that's going on that just happened the day before. It's just very sorrowful. I don't understand why, why I'm feeling this way. But this is something that he's been going through perhaps for months, for weeks. It's been a long time, and now he's getting impatient. How long, O oh Lord? He feels forgotten and left out. Will you forget me forever? He feels like, like God has forgotten him. When you think about a, an, an omnipresent omnipotent, all-knowing, all-seeing God, and you think he's forgotten about you? Man, that, that's cold. It's, it's like God has forgotten me. I know he's everywhere. I know he sees everything, but he doesn't see me. Or else he'd, he'd do something. I can't hear him. I can't feel him. Know if you ever felt this way, but he, this duration of this dark night in his, in his soul is, is unbearable. It's unbearable. He's, he's waiting for it to, to come to an end. How long am I going to feel like this? Am I going to die like this? How long must I, my t must I take counsel in my soul? He feels, he feels lonely. He feels as though God is hiding from him. He's sorrowful and sad. And, and David's troubles, they're, they're internal and they're external. And we're going to see how this pattern goes all throughout this psalm, how the, he, when he prays, he prays for an internal resolution, and then he prays for an external resolution. He prays for, and, and when he rejoices, he rejoices internally, and then he rejoices externally. And so he says, internally, he says, he's taking counsel in his soul. 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? He's sorrowful. He's wrestling inside of himself. He's having this this inner monologue. He's having this this boardroom experience where his conscience, his mind, his thoughts are all gathered at this table and, and they're just passing it around about why do I feel like this? You ever had that experience where you, you've just got this boardroom inside yourself and you're just passing it around, your conscience is telling you that, that maybe, you're, maybe you deserve this. Maybe you deserve to feel like God has forgotten you. And then the next minute, your, your, your thoughts and your mind are, are trying to justify you. Well, you, you. You went to church. You've been doing everything right. It's like Job's friends. You're just giving him all this, this wrong advice, and it's inside of ourselves that, that this, David's finding out that this is just futile. It's, it's bringing nothing. He keeps talking to his conscience, his, his mind, his thoughts, and they're not providing any help. And that's why he needs to hear from God. Amen. Internally, he's just wrestling with himself. He's losing sleep. This is all the day. This isn't a, a part of the day. This isn't at the end of the day when he goes to bed. This isn't when he wakes up. This is all day. He's having a hard time focusing. He's having a hard time finding joy at all. Sorrow is in his heart. He's, a, he's afflicted. He's distressed. He's weak. He's lost his joy. He feels like God has, has hidden his face from him. And externally, he's got problems too. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but you've, you've just got this war going on on the inside, these troubles and these afflictions going on on the inside, and if that's not bad enough, now you've got problems on the outside. Now things are going badly externally. And this is what's happening when he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So it's not like I'm just wrestling on the inside with these thoughts, these, this sorrow. I feel alone. I feel like God doesn't hear me. I feel like my prayers are hitting a ceiling. But now I got problems on the outside because my enemies are being exalted over me. David may be, we see, we don't know who his enemies are in this particular psalm. It could be Saul or it could be his own son, Absalom. But in these times, the king of Israel is hiding in a cave. He's hiding in a cave. And internally, he's got these problems. This, this might even be confirming for him the reason why God has forgotten. No wonder you've forgotten me. I'm in a cave. This just points to the fact that you have forgotten me, God. And so, in addition to just struggling with the sorrow and the pain and the, the loneliness that he feels inside, he's wondering externally, he's, got, he's, he's thinking these thoughts of, uh, my enemies are being exalted over me, will they find me? Will they put their foot on my neck and, and, and cut my head off? Will, will my family be killed? Will, is God raising up someone to take my place? Will I even win another battle? Will I ever come out of this cave? So he's dealing with all of this. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt this, this loneliness, this, this, just, this anxiety of not knowing if God hears you? This sorrow on the inside where it's just constant wrestling, this, this loneliness, this feeling forsaken by God. This is the world we live in. And it's okay to be honest with that. To not avoid that, to not try to push it under the rug and try to get yourself together on Monday and Tuesday and Sunday and all these other days where, and just act like it's okay. But when the sorrow comes, when the pain comes, to, to address it, to look it in the face and then cry out to God, why? I don't understand. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone in this loneliness. You're not alone in this feeling rejected and not feeling accepted. Because there was another man who felt this way a million times more than you or I have ever felt or will ever feel. This man was Christ. 
For three hours, uh, prior prior to three hours on the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. I'm not just sad about this, you know, and we'll get over it. But it's exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And this is what David's saying, that because of these problems, I'm either going to die from the sorrow or I'm going to die from the sword. One of them's going to kill me. And so this is what Christ goes through, that he sweats drops of blood, that he says to, he prays to the Father in the same way that David prays to God. He turns towards God and says, if there's another way out of this thing, let's do this thing. But if not, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So Christ feels this. He, he knows what you are going through. He knows what David is going through, this, this feeling of sorrow, exceeding sorrow. And then he feels the forsakenness. He feels the forsakenness way more than you and I have ever felt forsaken. He feels the forsakenness way more than David even feels forsakenness in this song. He feels like God has hidden his face from him. But, but Christ on those three hours on the cross, God really did hide his face from him. Because he bore your sin and my sin, and God punished him and poured out his wrath upon him for the sins that we committed, God forsook him and turned his face away from him on that cross, smiting him because of the the sin that you and I committed. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, David feels forsaken in this song, but the reality is he's, he's not. He's just not focusing on the steadfast love of the Lord. His feelings are very real. His feelings are very, they need to be taken into account that this is the way he feels like God has hidden his face from him. But God really did hide his face from Christ. Christ really was forsaken for your sake, for my sake. For three hours on the cross, he bore our sins, forsaken by God. So know that you're not alone. Christ experienced this a million times more. And as a matter of fact, he died so that you and I would never have to feel true forsakenness. He died so that you and I would never have to feel true loneliness. See, we feel loneliness and we feel forsakenness, but the reality is if we trust in Christ, we're going to find out with David, he's never really forsaken. God's steadfast love is enduring. It has endured. It will presently endure in the past, present, and future. But apart from Christ... There is true forsakenness. There is true loneliness. But in Christ, we we never have to experience that. He he bore that on himself. So that God now says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, even until the end. So what do we do? Next next point, he's, he's, he's at this petition. He's at the petition in verses 3 and 4. He says, Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. So this is what's happening. It's, it's internal and it's external. And this, this when it says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. It literally means look. Look at me. Hear me out. Look at me. God, I need your attention. Don't you see me? Look at me. When will this end? Answer me. I don't know if you've ever, ever called someone on a cell phone and you, you just dialed them and maybe it's your grandparents or something and they, they don't know how to use it right and you, you've been calling them a hundred times and they just don't pick up and you're just like, man, answer me. I just need an answer. I need to know where you're at. I need to know, you know something. I need to answer me. This is what David's feeling. feel like he's, he's hitting a wall, a ceiling, that he can't hear from God, like his prayers aren't being answered or even heard. 
Then he prays for an internal solution and an external solution. He says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying this, this, this light up my eyes means give me strength, give me life, give me refreshment, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me life. I don't feel it. I feel weak. I feel helpless. I feel like I'm going to die in this sorrowful state lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's depressed. This sorrow is, is killing him slowly. If he continues to think that God has hidden his face from him, then he'd rather die. And then externally... Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He also continues to have these problems on the outside. His foes are going to find him. He doesn't know if they're going to kill him. He needs a solution. He needs to hear from God. And ultimately, his problem is not that he has enemies. And his problem is not that he's got sorrow on the inside and he's really wrestling. But his problem is that he does not feel the love of God. And when we go through loneliness and when we go through depression and when we go through these feelings, our, our main problem is if we, we trust in Christ and we feel this way, we feel like, God, if I don't have your love, I don't feel safe going anywhere or doing anything. What is the point of living if I do not know that I am, am accepted by you? What is the point? I'd rather, just, I'd rather just die. I've got to know if you hear me. I've got to know if you accept me. I've got to know if you're hiding your face from me. So what, what do we do when we feel like this? We see that we're not alone in this, that Christ feels this. But here's the sorrow, here's, here's Christmas time, and here's the media, and here's the, the culture, and here's the, their definition of love, and it's being promoted, it's, and commercials are going, and, and, and what do we do? Well, don't turn to a functional savior. Don't turn to this functional savior, especially around this time of the year, the advertisements, the marketing, all this stuff is, is promoting all these, these things to tell you, I'll love you. If you just buy me, purchase me for $19.99. Come, if you have me, you'll be loved. I'll love you. I'll remove those feelings of loneliness. You won't be lonely, at least temporarily. Go get this functional savior. Go look for some friends. Go look for some family. Go look for, as good as those things are, it says, come to me. I'll love you. You don't feel love from God? I'll love you. Don't turn to a functional savior. Don't turn to salvation in anything other than in any other source. And around this season, like we said, there, there's so many things that are trying to get our attention, trying to, trying to move us away from focusing on the supreme demonstration of what it means to be loved. And so this is what happens. And, and it's, we don't want to focus on that. We don't want to miss the supreme demonstration of God's love and, and sending his son by, by, by ignoring those things, ignoring, ignoring God's love and ignoring our sorrow and ignoring the, the feelings that we feel by, by putting them off on some functional savior, by putting them off on, on something or somebody and never really addressing the problem. But just going to Christmas and, and giving gifts and smiling and being happy and acting like we have it all together and, and getting gifts or, 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 or having loved ones around and feeling like this is, this is what it's about. This is, this is what I need. And I used to, uh, when, when I was in high school, I went through this just very sorrowful time. And I'd come home and I'd sit on the couch. And I'd, just, I'd just sulk before I did my homework and I'd just turn on the television. And I was really going through this just very depressing time and 
my dad would come home and he'd go, come and stand in front of the TV and he'd just say, that TV can't love you. That TV can't love you. And I'd be like, come on, dad. But, but it's still true. Our functional saviors, the things that, that, that we look to for hope, for love, for joy, for peace, they can't love you. You got your iPhone and you're talking to Siri. Siri, do you love me? You're talking to the flat screen. You're talking. It's, that's what we do in one way or another. But, but God's love is the supreme demonstration of love and that he sends his son to die for our sins on the cross to show you that I love you. I lo- I'm putting away your sins. This is love. This is the supreme demonstration of love. God loves us. On the cross, Christ loves us, dies for us. And when we go after the functional saviors, they can't love us. People cannot, will never love us with the love that God has shown in loving us. So what happens here? There's this turning point. David doesn't, he doesn't turn to a functional savior. He doesn't just get out of the cave and go, you know, have a meal or go buy a flat screen or go uh, and enjoy himself. But rather, what does he turn to? Verse 5, it says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. What is this? Like, what happened? What's this turning point here? It's just, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me. Answer me. You know, my enemies are, are, are rejoicing because I'm shaken. I don't want them to, you know, to, that to happen, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. There's this change of perspective here. Something's happened. What's happened? I've trusted in your steadfast love. God's steadfast love is the source of David's joy, the joy that we're going to now see that he has. Very real joy, very real peace, very real hope. He turns to the steadfast love of God. It's the source of David's joy, and it will be the source of our joy. You feel lonely. You feel this depression. You feel this anxiety, this worry, this fear. Turn to the steadfast love of the Lord. What does that mean? He's not placing his confidence in himself. He's not placing his confidence in his ability to try to do something or, or be pleasing to God. He's placing his confidence and his trust in God's steadfast love. And what happens when he does this is when this term steadfast love is mentioned in the Psalms, it's often mentioned in looking back and seeing what God has done. Uh, I looked at Psalms 136 in preparation for this, and you see how God in his steadfast love, it says, give thanks to the Lord for for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Then it talks about in his steadfast love, he created the world and the stars and the universe and the earth. And then in, in his steadfast love, he redeemed Israel from Egypt. He he redeemed them and delivered them from the power of Pharaoh. And then in his steadfast love, he he delivered them from armies that were gigantic and outnumbered them by thousands. He he saw them in his steadfast love in their lonely estate and provided for them and cared for them. He looks back to this and he sees, God, your steadfast love is free. It loves because it is pleased to love. You loved your people who didn't deserve it. You loved your people who, who, weren't, uh, who weren't deserving of your love, and you freely chose to, to show and to demonstrate your love in redeeming them and saving them and providing for them. And so for you and I, we, we don't have to, to look back necessarily to the Exodus or look back to the judges or look back to the, to the things how God has provided for his people when he gave them manna or when he gave them water out of the rock, but we have something greater to look to. 
Because in God's, the greatest demonstration of God's love is Christ stretched out on the cross bearing your sins and my sins. And we can look to that to see God's supreme demonstration of his love for us. And that is the love that we trust in. That is the steadfast love that we hope in, that we put our joy in. That is the love that will turn things around in our perspective when we feel this loneliness and this sorrow. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is love that God sent his son in the world, into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. We look at that. We anticipate that. We long for that, that he will come again because we trust in him and believe in his work, that he will come again to redeem us, to deliver us, to bring, him to, bring us to himself, and loneliness will be gone. Frustration, anxiety, fear, uh, war, no peace. No hope, no joy, all of those things will be eliminated at the final consummation where he brings those who he loves, his bride, his sheep to himself. That is, that is trusting in the, the steadfast love of the Lord, what he's done for us in Christ. So this internal resolve, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The same heart that was, rege- that was sorrowful, the same heart that was wrestling, the same heart that was in that boardroom taking, taking suggestions as to why I'm feeling this way now has a solution. It's now rejoicing. Thanks, guys. Meeting's adjourned. I've got, I've got a solution. The steadfast love of the Lord. So this heart that was battling with depression, this heart that was, that was battling, that was sorrowful, is now rejoicing in God's salvation. And that's the same thing. It's, it's our solution. It's rejoicing in the Lord because he has justified us, declaring us right when we didn't deserve it on the basis of Jesus Christ. It sanctifies us. It sets us apart for his purposes. As Ephesians chapter 1 says that he has sealed us with this Holy Spirit of promise. And that that word sealed means it's Erebon. It means an engagement ring. He's given his bride this engagement ring so that at, at the, when he comes back for his possession, she is his. He's promised that he will, he will bring us to himself. He sanctified us and he will continue to work in us. The work that he begun in us at salvation, he will bring the completion and at glorification. The day that we will stand before him that because we have trusted in him, but because we have trusted in his sacrifice and him giving us grace, we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. He's become our husband. He's become our father. And these are just two ways that he, he demonstrates his love towards us. So I encourage you to trust in that love. Trust in that steadfast love that is seen at the cross of Christ. An external resolve. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully. Just six verses later, he's crying out, how long, O Lord? And now he's singing. What is that? Functional saviors can't do that. You're lonely again. It's temporary. It's fading. You got to pay something for it. This is free. He just turns and says, but I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. And now he's singing. The situation hasn't changed. We don't know that. He still may be in a a cave. His enemies still may be exalted over him. For us, our situations may change. We may die. We may may be persecuted. We may may continue to go through sufferings. But they're singing. There's rejoicing because God has dealt bountifully with us. He has dealt bountifully, not he will deal bountifully with me. He will knock my enemies off. He will one day, you know, make everything all better. No, he says he has dealt bountifully with me. 
It's present tense, even in the sorrow, even in the loneliness that you feel. God has dealt bountifully with you if you trust in Christ. Why? He hasn't given you what you deserve. Justice, wrath. And he's given you rather what you do not deserve. Free love when you were unlovely. Free grace when you were dead in trespasses and sins. Free joy. No one, nothing can take it away. Life, eternal life. This is what God does for us. This is the supreme demonstration that why we can even celebrate during the season and that Christ died for us to give us this, what we do not deserve. So conclusion, and I'll end here. What does it mean for us to trust in God's steadfast love? It was only one thing. It means to know its worth. It means to know, it's to, to see the love that, that, that the world, the media promotes at whatever time, whenever time, and it's to see that and put it on one side of the scale, and it's to see the supreme demonstration of God's love and what he has done for us in Christ, and put, the, put it on the other side of the scale, and just, just watch it, just completely outweigh it, to know its worth, to know what it, it brings us, to know what it, it gives us, to know why he gives us this love so that we can enjoy him, so that we can know him, so that we can be delighted with the supreme treasure. Not with earthly treasures or earthly distractions, but with the supreme treasure. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul is praying this for the church. He's praying this for the Ephesian church. He's praying this for Redemption Hill. He's praying this for his church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's he's praying that you would be strengthened. If you're in sorrow today, be strengthened. We pray that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He prays that you would know that, that you would see its worth. The love of Christ, what God has done in sending his son into this world to die for our sins. I pray that you would know the worth of that. Nothing else will measure up to that. Nothing else will compare to that, the, the worth of what God did and even turning towards sinful humanity, but going further than that than sending his son to die in our place for our sins so that if we believe and trust in him, then we'll be loved, loved by God eternally. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God so that God would fill us so we would enjoy God, so that we would know God, so we would know his love for us, and in turn love him eternally and enjoy him eternally. To know that nothing will separate us from that love. Nothing will pull us apart. To know that God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. He's poured it out in Christ. So I encourage you, if you don't know Christ today, if you wonder about Love and what it means is what the, the culture and the media promote of love, and I've got to have this to be loved. Know Christ. Trust in Christ. That is the supreme demonstration of love because he dies the death that you deserve to die. He takes the judgment and the punishment that you deserve, 
and then breaks down this middle wall of partition so now that you can be reconciled to God and enjoy him and love him and be loved by him. And this is what it means to be loved. This is what we focus on in this season of Advent and why we're able to rejoice and celebrate with one another because what Christ has done for us in loving us freely and choosing to, to die, to lay down his life, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So this is what it means. Let's go to the Lord for a word of prayer. Lord God, we just, we pray, Lord God, that you would continue to strengthen us Strengthen those who are, who are in sorrow. Strengthen those who feel lonely. Strengthen those who, who will go out into this world and, and, and see the world full of loneliness and hopelessness and without joy and without peace. And Lord, strengthen them to help them to know your steadfast love. Lord God, help us to know and to trust in your steadfast love, Lord God, when we feel sorrow, when we feel that maybe you've hidden your face from us. Grant us the grace of, and the reality of knowing that you have not forsaken us, that Christ is born our sins. He's borne our, 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 our rejection. He's borne all of the things that we, we feel like that, Lord God, on the cross. And help us to know that, that we are truly loved by you if we trust in you. Lord God, if we be, believe in that, that, that your sacrifice was sufficient for our sins. To know that there's nothing that we could do to make you love us even more. And there's nothing we could do, Lord God, to make, make, make you love us any less. But that your love for us is based on Christ. Lord God, Lord God, help us to see that he is our supreme treasure. He is the reason we rejoice because of the steadfast love that you showed in him on the cross. Continue to give us grace. Continue to give us hope and peace and love and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.